Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Anyone ever heard of the Sinner's Bible? Right, so here's a little nugget of trivia for some of you today. The Sinner's Bible is not some kind of satanic alternative to the Bible. It's not anything that involves the sinner's prayer, which would be the, the prayer that we lead folks through when, uh, when they're ready to give their life to Christ. The Sinner's Bible, also known as the Wicked Bible, not to be confused with the Broadway musical, was actually a good faith attempt to reprint the text of the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. However, the publishers, Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, made a slight error when they were setting the text for the printing press. In printing the page that contained Exodus chapter 20, they left out a very important word in the seventh commandment. Instead of printing the correct translation, thou shalt not, Barker and Lucas omitted the word not, resulting in a Bible that actually gave people the command, thou shalt commit adultery. Around 1,000 of the sinner's Bibles were printed before the error was discovered. And once it was discovered, most of the wicked Bibles were confiscated and burned. Barker and Lewis were brought before King Charles and fined for their omission. It cost them 300 pounds because of their mistake, which equates to about $50,000 today. And they also lost their license to print. A few copies remain today, and they are highly valuable. In fact, if you found yourself with a copy of the Sinner's Bible, then you could sell that and actually make enough money to cover the fee that the men incurred as a result of their mistake. Um, if you, you can't just take your Bible and mark out not, by the way. So don't get any ideas that it, I'll scribble that out and sell it. You can't do that. It's got to be the original. But there's just a handful left, and most are contained in museums and private collections. You know, that error was particularly flagrant in a society where the Bible was finally being printed in the people's language. And it was in an era when the common folks were we're finally starting to develop some degree of literacy. However, the error could easily be tracked to a human error in typesetting rather than an error in the design and the intent of the divine author. This morning, I want us to consider the Word of God and how important it is for us as we seek to honor God with our lives. And we do so by spending time in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and chapter 32, considering this morning the text that Moses leaves us called the Song of Moses. As we talked about briefly last week, the word Deuteronomy means second law. 
If you remember, of course, the journey, Moses has led the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, he was called to the top of the mountain where he was given the law, and he in turn took the law to the people. Well, you know the story, Mount Sinai, uh, the nation left, came to the border of the promised land. Spies were sent into the promised land. When those spies returned, their lack of faith infected the nation. And instead of triumphantly entering into the land to take the land that God had promised, they ended up wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for a long, long list of funerals. That entire generation of Israelites would die in the wilderness except for the two spies who were faithful, Joshua and Caleb. Deuteronomy is, of course, the second giving of the law to this new generation of Israelites. Their entire life was spent as wilderness wanderers. And one of Moses' last acts as the leader of the nation was to give law to this generation of Israelites so that as they go into the promised land to take possession of it, they are guided by and governed by the law, the word of God. And so as Moses concludes this second giving of the law, he appoints Joshua as his predecessor, and he teaches the people a new song. And so in Deuteronomy 31, this is where we find this, uh, this command for Moses to give this song to the people. So if you've got your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're going to read today, starting in verse 19. And if you would and you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word? Moses says this, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness." For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. And so Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. God, thank you for the song of Moses, for the instructions that Moses leaves the people. God, we understand the importance of of songs and teaching and learning and understanding the Word of God. We pray today, God, that we would uh, walk away today with a deeper appreciation for the words that you've left us. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If you flip over just a chapter into chapter 32 of the book of Deuteronomy, you can see the song in its entirety. It's where the prose of Deuteronomy changes into a poetic form of, of typeface. But the song that Moses gave to the people was a, was a summary statement of God's desire for his people. It was his warning against the people and his history with the people. 
Again, a song that was easy to remember and easy to sing. We don't know the jingle that went with it. We don't know the instrumentation or the music that went with it. But we know that it was a song that as Moses taught the people and they learned the song, that they would sing it. And by singing it, they would remember where they had come from. They would remember their covenant with the Lord. And it would contain words of warning for the people of Israel. It was intended to help them remember who the Lord was, what his expectations were. It was intended to challenge them to obedience. And so after giving the nation this new song, he says some things later in chapter 32 that have some particular significance for us today. You know, it's important that our songs are used not just to, as, a, as an avenue of worship, but that they're also used as a means of teaching, as a means of learning doctrine, as a means of learning the, the great truths about the faith. Good music, regardless of its instrumentation, serves that purpose. It's, it's more than just some of the pop stuff that you hear on the radio. Good music's designed to inspire and equip and challenge the people of God, understanding who they are, what God's desire is for them, and teaching us about the things of God. And of course, Moses' song does that. But as we flip over to the end of the song, towards verse 44, we learn some principles that are important for us today. Listen as I read through verses 44 through 47. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess." We find out very quickly on here that when Moses gave the words to the people, there's an important word that's in that statement that says Moses gave all of the words of this song to the people. He gave all of the words. Remember, this is a summary of God's love and God's law for the people. For them, this was their, their scripture. For a society that was illiterate and didn't have the ability to read, this was the way that everyone could understand and know what it is that God has for them. And so when Moses gives this to these people, this was their word from God. They did not have a bound book like we carry with us today. They did not have the, the pages to flip like we do. They didn't have the, the verses and the chapter references like we have. They had what Moses gave to them at this point in time. And this was, of course, their word from God. And guess what? It's also our word from God. It's also our word that God has given to us. The biggest difference is that you and I are blessed today to live in a time and generation when we've been given the full counsel of the Word of God. We've got everything from Genesis to Revelation, and every last word of it is an inspired word from God. We need to believe that today. We have in our possession God's full revelation that of everything that we need to know about Him, Everything that we need to know to walk with him, to love him, to serve him, all the warnings that we need to know, God has given to us in his word, and they certainly include the words that Moses gives here in Deuteronomy. 
But what Moses says about these words from so long ago, we need to look carefully in, at how we think about and consider the Word of God today. It concerns me very much that we are living in a day where very popular preachers are taking a very unfriendly view of the Old Testament. We're seeing this happen more and more where, where we, we even hear the, the statements like, well, I'm a New Testament believer. Well, I believe the New Testament too. I, I'm, I'm defined by, as a believer by the New Testament, but I believe the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament informs my New Testament faith. My New Testament faith is, is not as rich if I don't have an appreciation of what God has said in the Old. Today we see more and more preachers treating the Old Testament as if it is somehow or another less inspired than the New because it has some places that are kind of tough for us to grasp. There's things in the Old Testament that are hard to understand. And that's okay. I don't fully understand the book of Revelation either, but that doesn't mean that I get to throw it out because I don't grasp everything that it says. There are parts and places that are difficult, that are challenging for us. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, the apostle Paul told the leaders of the church at Ephesus, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Church, we must today be about declaring the whole counsel of God, not just the part that we are most comfortable with. Now, he certainly in his time in Ephesus did not have time to go verse by verse through the entire Old Testament, writing commentaries and exegeting and explaining every single little word that shows up in the Old Testament. He did not have time. But he made sure that the Ephesian leaders understood the Bible as it existed for them in their day. D.A. Carson said this, he says, what he must mean is that he taught the burden of the whole of God's revelation, the balance of things, leaving nothing out that was of primary importance, never ducking the hard bits, helping believers to grasp the whole counsel of God, that they themselves would become better equipped to read their Bibles intelligently and comprehensively. The task is no different for us today. As the church, our job in disciple-making is to help make sure that believers can read their Bibles intelligently and comprehensively. Though we acknowledge that there's parts of the Old Testament that are hard to understand, there's parts of the Old Testament that to some extent are repetitive, and dare we say there's some parts that may be a little high on the boring scale. But the fact is, is that we better understand them because our understanding of them only enhances our appreciation for what Christ has done for us. A rich understanding of the Old Testament only enhances our understanding of the New. This year, many in our church have been participating in a chronological reading of the Bible, and you're almost finished with it. And you spend a lot of time reading through the Old Testament you got through those long days in Leviticus and those long weeks in the prophets. But as you finish, you finish with a far greater appreciation for the things of God, for the Word of God. And hopefully you finish with at least an acknowledgement that all the words matter. All the words. Moses teaches all the words to the people, and we live today as believers in all the words of God's Word. 
We also understand something that Moses says here. Look at uh, verse 46. He says, take it to heart, all the words by which I am warning you today. Take it to heart. What does it mean to, to take something to heart? When we take words to heart, it means that we give words the seriousness that they deserve. The words in the Bible are not like the words of a comic book. The words in the Bible are not like the words of the newspaper. The words of the Bible, they're not like the words that are spoken in movies or on television. They may be entertaining words, perhaps even informative words, but when we consider all the words that we hear apart from the Bible, how much of those words should we be taking to heart? You know, we understand this, that the more important we deem a word the more likely we are to take it to heart. The more important we deem a word, the more likely we are to take it to heart. One time I was involved in a door-to-door outreach, inviting uh, people, I think, come to vacation Bible school or something, and approached a house that had a fence around the front yard, and there on the gate was a sign with big orange letters, and the sign said, Beware of dog." Now, I thought for myself for a minute, you know, they probably just put that sign up there so that people like me don't come knocking on their door. And so we kind of looked around, you know, this is guerrilla warfare, you know, you're trying to get the neighbors to come to church. So look around, looking for a sign of the old mean dog in the yard, and low up on the porch there, there was an old brown dog that was laying there, and you could tell he saw me as I walked down the sidewalk. And he stuck his head up, and you know them ears, they kind of they perk up a little bit. But he didn't really get too excited. Until I got to the gate and started to consider my next step. Well, then he started to look a little more intrigued by me. Now, part of me thought, he looks kind of like a big old pushover. If I just step in the yard there, you know, he's going to come out and, and lick me to death, not do anything worse than that. But I saw that sign again, and I thought to myself, you know, those words are important. Those words matter. And so in that moment, I decided to heed those words because those words were of pretty significant importance in that moment. And so I took those words to heart, and me and the old brown dog never came face to face any any further than the porch to the sidewalk. I was obedient to those words words. You know, we are confronted day in and day out with many different words. And we are constantly weighing the significance of those words. But what God has said about these words are words that we need to take to heart. He says later in verse 47 that these words, speaking to the people of Israel, but indirectly speaking to us, he says these words are your very life. Think about that. There's not many places where we hear that. This word is your very life. I mean, most of us will go through our days and our weeks and not hear something of, of that significance. The doctor might look at you and say, take this medicine or else you'll die. 
Well, that's a word that matters to your very life, right? That word has significance. You'll heed that word. You might work in a place where you see a sign on a big metal box that says, high voltage, do not touch. Well, you don't, you don't test the theory because you understand that that word is your very life. I don't even like sticking my tongue to a 9-volt battery. You take it seriously. You take it to heart because you understand those words affect your life. And God says, these words are your life. He also stresses something else of great significance. And we emphasize this a lot because I believe that we have failed as the church in the last days regarding this. He stresses that these words should be taught to our children Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. You know, if it's something that important, we're going to make sure that we are telling people how important it is. We're going to make sure that our children know just how important it is. And this is what he says here. Parents, command these words to your children. Teach these words to your children. I'm going to ask you this. Moms and dads, if you don't do it, if it's not important to you, who is going to do it on your behalf? Your kids go to school. I'm certain that the school's not taking time to correctly teach children the Word of God. You can bring your kids to church, and that's certainly a great start, but church is only a, an hour or two per week. We're told now that, that parents will give us about one and a half to, to 1.6 or 7 hours a week is what people are willing to give their children to the church. And you think about that in contrast to how long they're at school. School's a full-time job. 35, 40 hours a week for most kids. In church, we get them one, two, three hours at the most. You see, the Bible over and over again repeats these instructions in so many different places. In Exodus 12, they were told that the meaning of the Passover was to be passed down to the children. In Joshua 4, Joshua was commanded to, he commanded to gather stones from the middle of the Jordan River and build a monument on the other side. Why? In order to teach subsequent generations about how God had allowed Israel to cross into the promised land. It was a time, it was a monument, it was a way to teach and instruct future generations. Psalm 78 is an entire psalm that expresses this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Listen, the people of God understood that God was doing something so awesome in their lives that they didn't have a choice but to tell their kids about it. Moms and dads, how well do your children know your testimony of how you came to faith in Christ? Because if God did a miracle in your life and rearranged you and changed you, then why in the world would you not share that with the next generation? We share all the funny stories about when we grew up. 
Oh, tell the story about this, or tell the story about that, that time that you did this funny thing, or this time that you did that funny thing. Men and women, we ought to be telling our kids and our grandkids about how we came to faith in Jesus. Tell them the story of what God has done in our lives. I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons that we've seen such a dramatic falling away in the Christian faith from our young adults is because we failed in this regard. Moses says something that is truly profound there in verse 47, though. He says, it is no empty word for you. No empty word for you. If you're looking at the King James Version, it says, it's not a vain thing for you, talking about these words from God. Literally, no empty words. You just stop and think about how many words our world is filled with that are empty, devoid of meaning, have no significance. As we approach an election year, can you believe that? A year from today or a year from this November, we're going to be voting again in a presidential election. Our world is going to be overtaken by folks who are professionals at using words that are void of meaning. Uh, it's guaranteed, aren't you glad you don't live in Iowa? It's going to be overtaken by people who this is their career of using words that are void of meaning. I shared this with our Wednesday night crowd a few weeks ago. I reached out to one of our elected officials in the case where the Texas mom was fighting the Texas dad about their, their little boy. The mom thought the little boy wasn't a little boy, and the dad thought the little boy was a little boy, and they were fighting with each other about who had the right to, to authorize a transition. And a Texas jury said that mom had the right to allow this, this seven-year-old boy to transition into something other than a seven-year-old boy. And, and I learned in, in watching this that there's no laws that prohibit doctors from offering that sort of treatment to small children. And so I reached out to one of our elected official, officials just to, just to find out why is there any traction, is there any laws that are working on being put in the books, is there anything happening that would prevent this type of child abuse from taking place in the future? And I got back a page-long letter from this elected official I simply shared my opinion, asked for some sort of insight into any of the, what was happening from a, litig, uh, from, a, from a legal standpoint, a legislation standpoint, and I got a full-page letter that was full of nothing. I mean, it was, it was completely full, 12-point font, top to bottom, and it said absolutely nothing. I thought, you've got to be really skilled to write a letter with that many words and not say anything. But that's the problem. Our world is full of words that are void of meaning. I felt like the writer of that letter got brownie points for filling up a page. So many of the words that we speak are full of empty words and empty meaning. Give serious thought for a moment to the words that you speak on a daily basis.
How many of those words are just vain words? Empty words. How many words are spoken in anger that have no meaning other than to cause harm? Words spoken in moments of carelessness that do not inform, encourage, do not even caution. But Moses says here, the words that he's speaking, the words from God, are anything but empty. They're full. They're full of life. They're full of meaning. They're full of grace and truth. These words are full of everything that we need to know about the Lord and how to have a right relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's told us everything that we need to know as far as life and godliness is concerned. All through the precious words of God. For these Israelites, the word was the means by which they would live long in the land. That's the promise. God says, if you go across the land, you keep my word, then you're going to be blessed and live long in the land. If you don't, you won't. For us, the, the word of God is the means by which we understand the gospel, the means by which we are saved. For us, the word of God is full, and because it's full, it is sufficient. It's not to say it's not helpful to have commentaries and study Bibles and even your Sunday school literature, which... Here's a secret. It's just a throwaway version of commentaries and study Bibles, as all Sunday school literature is. But we need to always remember that the Word of God is sufficient. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, be complete, equipped, for every good work. Listen. This is the only thing that we have that can fulfill that role in our lives. That's it. There's nothing else. Nothing else can take its place. There are no substitutes. And it's not empty. So this morning I would encourage us that it's time to be filled in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15, verse 16, the prophet says this. Again, one of those, those hard-to-understand statements. He says this, Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, the God of hosts. When God says to eat the word, that, that may sound obscure, particularly if you take him literally and you start tearing these little pages out and start chewing on them during the service. But the challenge in eating the word of God is, is not some sort of weird practice of getting a little more fiber in your diet. 
The practice of eating the Word of God here is, is allowing the Word of God to become our food, our spiritual food. In the Lord's Prayer, when we're told to pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are to hearken back to the days where God provided manna in the wilderness. But for those of us who live today where we're not worried about manna in the front yard, when we're told to have our daily bread, it's a good place to start right here. And eat that precious word. Consume that precious word. Let it feed our souls and nourish our spirits. In the same sense that we need daily nutrition from the food that we eat, we need daily the spiritual nourishment, nourishment that's found in the Word of God. Daily, we need to be fed. It's no empty word. It wasn't empty for Moses. It wasn't empty for the Israelites. And it's just as full today for us as New, as New Testament believers. It's just as full for us today as it has been for centuries. Do not neglect it. Do not overlook it. Do not attempt to learn it by osmosis. Feast on the words. Love the words. Teach the words to your children and grandchildren. Let the Word of God dwell richly in your lives. It's no empty word. It's full for all of us. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.